may be seated. So I hear it's a powder day. No, thank you. I've skied on a day like today, and it was not, not for me. So you guys are some smart folks. So, um, man, it reminds me, uh, I was a Boy Scout, and, um, and so as a, as a Boy Scout in middle school, and uh, I never, I didn't finish. I got to Life Scout. I didn't finish my Eagle Scout project. Big kind of regret at that, but um, I... Uh, <laughs> One of my one of our most like famous like camping stories that we always talk about um, is actually one of the camp camp camping opportunities my dad went with us. And my dad is an attorney now, but he's a he's a he's a marine. He fought in Vietnam. He was a sergeant. Um, his his name is Gary, but his real name is Sam. So he's Sergeant Sam in Vietnam. You know, and he's a little runt, and and we love him. And uh, he can still kick me out, and he's seventy. And it's true. Okay, so anyway, we were on this camp out, and, um, and it was supposed to be cold, um, but it's no big deal because it's Texas, right? And so uh, we were going, we, we ended up driving out. It's in the middle of the night. We're leave, we left Fort Worth. I forget where we're going. And, uh, and it starts sleeting on the bus. We're on the school bus. So there's just a ton of us. And so they say, you know, should we turn this thing around? And you know, everybody's kind of like, no, we can do this. It's just going to, it'll pass. You know, it's Texas. It's like, Winter, summer, spring, all in the same day. And, uh, and so we keep on driving. It's dark. The bus breaks down. And uh, my dad gets out, and it's sleeting, and it's cold. And then the bus gets cold. And my dad's out there working on it with our scoutmaster, who's, I think, 150, maybe 70. Super old dude. Um, he's still alive today. He's in the mountains somewhere. I'm just joking. He's long gone. But anyway, so anyway, very, very old man. And uh, my dad and him are out there trying to fix the bus. And they end up, I don't know what my dad does. He ends up getting it working. And uh, he's very mechanical like that. And they would get back on the bus. It starts to heat up again. And we, we you know, drive all the way out to this campsite, still sleeting. And uh, because there's so many of us and because they wanted to keep us warm, somebody had this great idea of, well, we have the Boy Scouts have these army tents so we're going to take these 25 boys, and we're going to put them in two army tents side by side. That way they'll stay warm. This is such a bad idea. There's a shelter, but it only sleeps two. So guess who got to sleep there? Dad. Okay, so dad and the old man are in there, and they set up these two army tents for us. And, uh, and it was the longest night of my life. It really, and I've had a lot of life. Um, and so it's sleeting constantly, and, and it's starting to, and oh, by the way, they didn't close the army tents. Like, they're open. I don't know what is happening. I'm just, I'm just a 12-year-old out of control in this world that's falling to pieces, and sleet is now flying in, and we're all huddled up in our Texas sleeping bags. They're not rated for 30 degrees, thank you very much, right? We got them at Walmart, right? And so they're just, we're all huddled into this thing, and, and then the kid, so do you feel like, so, okay, first off, the sleet's blowing in. We're on a hill for some reason. Why did they do this? And, and there's water kind of seeping through, but that's okay because my dad's going to clean the sleeping bag, not me, because he's warm. And so I'm just kind of cuddling in, and then the kid next to me in the middle of the night, I'll never forget this, he goes, mm, 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 and he runs out of the sleeping bag, kicks me in the head with his boot on, because that's what 12-year-olds do. We sleep in sleeping bags with boots on, and vomits right above my head. 
So all night I'm like, is it water or is it vomit that's seeping down on top of me? All night long. And he'd come back to the sleeping bag and then an hour later, jump out and kick me in the head. And I was like, this is the worst night ever. Still is. Still takes the cake. We get up the next day. All the wood is wet because we're Boy Scouts and we're prepared. And so it takes forever to get a fire started. We're freezing. Just to tell you how severe it was, it was like the worst ice storm ever in Texas, of course, that night. And we took the poles out of the tents and they still stood up, which I thought was pretty funny. That's normal here, but there it was like, what? I've never seen anything like it. It was a horrible night. When everything falls apart, uh, and that's a funny thing, and it was, it's a funny story to tell my kids, it's a funny thing to look back on, but there are seasons in life that kind of feel like that camp out, right? I mean, there are times in our life when it seems like the bottom has just dropped out, and we don't know what we're going to do, we don't know where God is, we don't know who's at the wheel, we feel completely out of control, and this thing is a complete mess. And uh, that is where our series takes us today, um, in the mountains. And so we're in, we're in mount, this series looking at these mountaintop experiences that, um, that are in the Scripture. So it's partly Israel, so I'm the Old Testament, we'll get to the New Testament in a couple of weeks. But, so we're looking at these mountaintop experiences, and today we see Israel go to the mountain after what is a horrible day for the nation of Israel. So if you want to open up your Bible or digital device to the book of Joshua, um, I invite you there. And can I just, man, can I just tell you this? I have never preached out of the book of Joshua, ever. I don't think I ever have. So you're in for a treat. <laughs> um, <laughs> in fact, I was just reading Joshua a couple months ago, and it was part of my um, quiet time, devotional time. Um, now I'm in Ruth, which is funny. So I just read it, uh, just preached through it. But, um, but anyway, I was reading through Joshua, and I was reminded of, of um, I, didn't, I don't like it. It's a really hard book. Have you ever read Joshua? Don't, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but it's a hard book to read. I mean, Ezekiel's hard to read. Revelation's hard to read. They're hard for because they're prophecy and stuff like that. But Joshua's hard because you're watching God's nation, God's people do really horrendous, I mean, barbaric things. They're at war. Like, they're going to take the promised land in the book of Joshua. And so I just want to just... Because even today we're going to see some of this. And so I want to give you two things that help me read the book of Joshua appropriately and help my heart as, we, as, as I read through it. So this is this kind of, this has a little to do with the sermon, but not much. And it's snowing outside, you don't care anyway. So here you go. All right, so two things. Number one, um, when you read the book of Joshua, remember it's full of hyperbole. 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 Thank you. Okay. It's full of hyperbole. In other words, you're going to see, even today, you're going to see everyone was killed. Everyone in the town was killed. Everyone was destroyed. Everything was ruined. You're going to see these hyperbole, hyperbole, (laughs) you're going to see these grandiose statements. And it's going to seem very general, right? Yet you have to, when you so you'll see that, and it's like shocking. You're like, oh, they killed like the kids, like the women. They did that. I mean, it's like shocking to you, right? But then you, if you keep reading, you'll see. Oh, well, there was women from this town and children from this town, and they're with the Israelites now. And so it's not that they. It's hyperbole. Hy, it's that word. 
okay? It's generalizing. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, if you will, right? They didn't kill everybody, but they killed all the soldiers. They completely demolished the army, right? But they didn't kill the kids and the women necessarily in all cases. Were there, was there some of that? Yes, there was. I can't get past that. But not in every case did everyone die. It reminds me, and, and as soon as I start to feel just a little bit morally superior to the book of Joshua, it doesn't take me two seconds to think about what Americans did to Native Americans, right? It does, I mean, every country has done this to its natives, right? So I have no, no righteous foot to stand on to judge the book of Joshua as I sit in my warm, cozy house on Native land, right? None of us can. And if you have a problem with the way America treated Native Americans, then you shouldn't live here either, right? But you do, and you love it, and so you've got to deal with that history as well. So there, there's all that. In fact, I would even say, and this, maybe I'm going too far with this, but I would say this. The way Israel treated the Canaanites is probably better than the Americans treated the Native Americans. It wasn't that bad, but it was still bad. Okay, number two, the church is not Israel. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, who have gathered here in the name of Christ Jesus, we are not given a promised land like Israel, okay? Uh, so we don't, I know our founding fathers, some of them believed, the Puritans believed that America was going to be the next Israel and that this was the promised land. They treated it that way in some cases, but that is not good theology. We do have a promised land though, my friends, and it is gonna, the circumstances will be almost exactly the same. There'll be a day when the earth has reached a point that it is beyond redemption, where it is killing Christians, it hates, it hates the church and hates Jesus, and has followed completely in, under the authority of the Antichrist and Satan. When it reaches that point, God will return, it'll be swift, and we will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. We get the promised, our promised land is heaven, right? In the meantime, we are meant to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay, that's all I got to say about that. All right, so we're going to look at Joshua 7 and 8. We'll go quickly through these chapters. In fact, I'm going to skip a lot. But before we get there, let me bring you up to speed. The books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the first five books of the Bible. They are the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. They are called the Torah. The reason David grabbed five smooth stones is because he's representing the Torah of God. It is the Word of God. Most Jewish boys at the, at the time of these books were written, by the age they were 14, had to have the entire Torah memorized. Dax, Austin, you guys get to work. All right, we got to memorize the whole thing. All five of those books were memorized. It was known. They read it. They loved it. They worshiped it. It was, it was God's word, right? It ends with Moses at Deuteronomy looking at the promised land. Moses, God's man, looking at the promised land and right, make this your next health and wealth salvation book, and he doesn't get to have it. <laughs> Isn't that just great? <laughs> Oh, no, Andrew, you're so mean. I know. God says, I'm going to take you and show you the promised land, and now you're going to die. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, your best land now. Okay, you guys are like cold. I don't know what it is, but I'm having a lot of fun. Okay, so Moses dies, and he commissions Israel to go into the promised land and to follow the Torah, follow the first five books. Don't let them go. And jo um, Joshua is in charge of these people. He's the new replacement for Moses. He's the general. He's leading them into this campaign. 
So the next generation moves in the promised land. They, uh, right after Moses dies, a couple days later, they, they cross, they part the waters of the Jordan. So they part the waters again. Uh, we don't talk about that one very much. It's a small river. They part the waters of the Jordan as the ark crosses over. They go to a place called Gilgal. I've been there uh, where they are circumcised and they do some things to get themselves ready for the inheriting of the promised land. Everybody at this time is probably age 55 or younger. Very young group compared to what they have been because the previous generation had sinned before God. They weren't allowed to see the promised land, so they died in the desert. And now the new, younger generation gets to receive the promised land of God. That Gilgal sits, so there's a mountain, and Gilgal kind of sits underneath this mountain, kind of like what we're familiar with. It's almost like in a valley. And when you climb to the top of the mountain, um, you, can, you can see Jericho. And so it is likely they camped there. Remember, there's a million of them, and Jericho cannot even see them coming. And they're doing their thing. They have their tents set up. They have their livestock and everything like that. It's a wide, huge space. Now it's farmland, and there's a great place for shawarma there. You should try it. And, uh, and so they, you can, but when you get over the mountain, you can see Jericho, and it's likely that they, they went over the mountain and went and attacked Jericho, and Jericho fell so easily, comparatively. Here it is, it's this large city with a wall around it. It is a significant city. And they walk around the wall seven times and blow trumpets and pretty much take the city. Nobody dies. It's a perfect battle. They win playing jazz music. Right? I mean, you know, it's like, what are we going to do next? Flutes? I mean, this is great. This is so easy. God's got us, right? And so it's with this kind of swagger. It's so fascinating when you're reading the book of Joshua, how they kind of have this swagger heading into AI. So Joshua chapter 7, verse 2. Don't read verse 1 because it spoils the ending, right? So verse 2 says this. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to, the Josiah, uh, to Joshua excuse me, and said to him, do not have all the people go up. But let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack AI. Do not make the whole people go up there, for they are few. So the spies go into AI. They go near AI, and they say, listen, Joshua, this, this, these guys are nothing. In fact, we're going to find out later. There's, there's 12,000 people in the whole town. It's as big as steamboat in mud season, right? <sighs> A little bit. I mean, it's kind of funny. Okay, and so... Um, and so they, they, they say, listen, we just knocked down walls with trumpets. We got this. One for one. They probably have about 3,000 fighting men. Send in 3,000, maybe two. No big deal. So Joshua says, okay, I'm going to listen to my advisors, and that's what I'm going to do. Verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed 36 of their men, of the Israelites, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And you think, well, 36 men. Well, Israel's never lost. I mean, they've never lost a battle. They've never lost a man. And now they send 3,000. They lose almost 1%. Right? I mean, they, they lost some people. They've never lost anybody before. They're family. And so this, it's a shock to them. This is this is their worst day. In fact, it says, it says their hearts melted. That word is used about the people of Jericho. It says the Canaanites, their hearts melted when they heard about God coming. They had, in other words, they had no hope, they had no confidence, and they had no God. And now the book of Joshua is making it very clear. These people 
on their worst day, they have no hope, they have no confidence, and they feel like they have no God. And you can see that when uh, the way that Joshua responds. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore, this is 36 men have died, right? Tore his clothes, right? Just tore his clothes, fell on the earth, on his face before the ark of the Lord, because that's where God dwelled, they believed, until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, right? I mean, they were just dirty and dirty, soiling themselves. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over, to, over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Here's what he's saying. God, you caused, you, you should have just left us over there, over in the desert. You never should have brought us over here just to die before the people of AI. He's completely just flabbergasted that God would do this. And he, he believes that the past would have been better. And doesn't it sound familiar? Don't you, if you, those of you who know the book of Exodus, they get into the desert and they're all hungry and thirsty. And go, well, it was way better off in Egypt where we were being whipped, enslaved, and our babies were being killed. But that's way better than being thirsty. I mean, this is like you just completely forget reality, right? And now here is Joshua saying, oh God, I know we're in the land of milk and honey, but the desert... <laughs> where we have to get water out of rocks would have been way better than this, right? I mean, just, you just completely forget what the past was like. Whenever, um, whenever I graduated from college, and I loved my college experience. I, I put my faith in Christ at 19, didn't figure it out until I was about 21. And I had the best Christian friends. I just did. I just, I mean, we loved Jesus. We would, we would mountain bike. We would go to church. We would read our Bibles. We would mountain bike. And we would hang out and play music. And then sometimes we would study because it was college. And I mean, we just had a blast. And it was a great college experience. And I graduated and moved back home to Fort Worth, Texas. And I became a Northwestern Mutual Financial Advisor. <laughs> Insurance salesman is what I was. And, uh, and I missed that. I missed my college friends so bad. And I also knew I was called to ministry. And so I, when my home church called me, um, my home college church called me to be their first ever youth pastor, I was so excited to get back to my college town. One, because I thought it was going to be like it was before. And two, there was this really cute girl that was there. And I had a, such a crush on her. But she was stuck in Naka Nowhere. And I got her. Anyway, and, uh, and so I went back and married that girl. And so anyway, so I was like, yes, I'll go. And, uh, but I got back to Nacogdoches, and before Angie and I even became an item, I, I remember feeling very, very quickly, it's not the same. They, some of them finally graduated. <laughs> some of them just left. And the towns, my friends were gone, and the town just wasn't, the, it was still a great town. It still is a great town, but it just wasn't the same. It wasn't what I, it wasn't what I remembered it to be. That is, listen, when you find yourself on your worst day, you have to remember your past is not as great as you thought it was. It just wasn't. And going back to it isn't going to make it any better. I tweeted this. As, it was, I don't know. I don't know if you saw it, but um, don't live for the thing, way things used to be. Don't live for that. Don't, you see people all the time, oh, it's not the way it used to be. It's not, not, you know, it used to be better when I was a kid. Yeah, I know. The 80s were better, but... 
It's not that way anymore. So we're given a choice. We can either wish for the way things used to be, or we can live to make the way things will be better. It's, life is going to come, right? 2020s are coming. We're in them, right? We're not in them yet, but they're coming, right? So the life is moving on. So the best you can do then is say, you know what? I'm here. It's a bad day. It's a bad experience. It's a bad town. It's a bad day at school. It's a bad day at work. It's a bad season of life. It's a long, long winter. Whatever it is that you want to say. But you just have to say, you know what, though? This is where I am. This is where God has pointed me. I'm going to do everything I can to bring him glory in this situation. Because that's all you can do. But Joshua responds the way most of us do. And we tell God, God, you never should have brought us here. This is all your fault, right? That's where he goes next. This is all your fault. Look at this, verse 8. <laughs> By the way, don't do this to God. Oh, Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth, and what will you do for your great name? In other words, this is what he's saying. Now that we've done this, now that we've had to flee this little bitty town of AI, everybody's going to hear it, and they're going to smell blood in the water. And here we are. We're out here in the desert. I just destroyed the town we could have retreated to named Jericho. And oh, by the way, I cursed it on my way out. Right? So we can't go back there. So here we are sitting in the desert, no protection at all. And the Canaanites are going to hear that the AI people beat us. And so we're toast. We're, we're dead. And it's your fault. That's what he tells them. Oh, what are you going to do about it? Because it's your fault. That's what he says. That's the Hebrew. What are you going to do about it? Right? That's what he's saying. So we, that's the second thing we do, isn't it? When everything falls apart, we wish for the way things used to be, and then we blame God. We do it. That's exactly what Joshua's doing. He's blaming God. He's saying, all of this is your fault. You need to fix it. And can I just, let me just tell you something about bad days, bad seasons. God never lets us down. He always has a reason for your circumstances. Your circum listen, you know, I'm, I remember my young faith. I used to be so guilty of this. Your circumstances are not a proof for God. And whether he's existing or whether he loves you, your circumstances are a tool in the hands of God. And AI, or Joshua needs to look at this AI situation as saying, you know what, this is, these are some really bad circumstances. Why? Why am I going through this? Not God, this is your fault. Not God, you don't exist anymore. Not God, you don't love me anymore. You know, what, you know it was better the way it used to be. It is, okay, this really stinks. God is really real. What, there's a tension. What needs to change? Now, I need to be faithful here because for generations, the American church has taught that if you're having a bad day or things are going really, really bad, it's because you have sin in your life. And that's the reason for this situation, but that's not the reason for every situation. Um, God uses bad things in people's life, bad circumstances for a couple of different things. I just wrote down a couple options here. Number one, to put us somewhere new. Right here. I did nothing wrong in my life. I did do things wrong. I wasn't the perfect pastor. If you're looking for a perfect pastor, good luck. But um, you're coming to the wrong church if you're looking for a perfect pastor. But I definitely didn't do anything worthy of what I experienced at my last spot. And, but the circumstances were so hard. In fact, I remember hearing a sermon about somebody. They said, 
um, Egypt was so good, if, it didn't become, if, they, if the Israelites didn't become slaves, they may have never gone to the promised land. Why risk it? God had to make that so hard to remove them from where they were to take them to where they are promised. Sometimes God gives us really hard seasons to move you. Now, none of you are moving here. You're staying right where you are because we love each other. But sometimes God does that to move us, to put you someplace, to put you in a different job, a different career path, put you in a different city, a different state. Sometimes God does that to move you. Um, sometimes God gives us hard circumstances to bring us closer to him. He's like, hey, yeah, I notice you're not praying a lot lately. You're not in the word. So let's just let some things unwind a little bit so you'll come back to me. I notice your heart is drifting. Sometimes God allows for things, bad things to happen, so he'll teach us to pray. Sometimes God allows bad things to happen to give us opportunities to reveal his glory. In fact, they're all that. And sometimes he, gives, um, sometimes he allows bad things to happen because of sin. But it's not always the reason for bad things to happen. Um, all, all God does, all of our circumstances, all that he allows are always for the reason of his glorification. All we have to do in those situations is remain faithful or find out what it takes to be faithful. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to know. In fact, if you're in this season right now, that, that's the first question you need to be saying is, okay, God, I'm in a really hard season right now. How can I be faithful to you in this time? Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. <laughs> I love that. Get up. Why are you falling on your face? Israel has sinned. <laughs> They have transgressed against my covenant and I command, that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things that they have stolen. Remember, it's all, this is all plural. They, they, they. Israel, Israel, Israel. Okay, look, look at that. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies, even the smallest of enemy. They, can't, they turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So God responds. He says, get up. You have sin in the camp. That's where the phrase came from. You have sin in the camp. You need to deal with it. And what we're going to find out is this, this leads to just one man who did this, but it's all plural. They have this. They have done this. They have stolen this. Israel has sinned. Israel will not be able to stand, even though it's down to one man. This is a, this is a, this is a phrase. I don't know if it's theological, but the phrase, the definition of this experience is corporate solidarity. And corporate solidarity is this idea that one person represents all. It's probably very military. Um, in my car, my kids, in fact, will, they know this. Um, I will say, hey, today after school, we're going to get slushies. But if one of you cries, it's off. None of you get slushies. One for all, all for one. That's what I tell them. Because you're family. And they just love it. They go, oh, yes, Dad, thanks for being such a good dad. No, they go, but what if I don't cry? It doesn't matter. If he cries or if she cries, it's off. All of you represent each other. I'm just trying to teach them good theology, right? And then they, so what do they do? Oh, don't cry. It's going to be okay. And there's no pinching or sliding or anything happening underneath the table because they're like, well, everybody's going to be good. And if somebody starts to lose it just a little bit, oh, honey, it's going to be fine. It's going to be, Dad, are we still getting slushies, you know, Right? Corporate solidarity. And this is what God wants for Israel. You are family. You hold each other accountable. You take care of each other. You inspire one another to holiness. Listen, when Achan does the sin that we're going to read about in just a second, people weren't blind to it. He did it in Jericho. 
People saw it, and nobody said, hey, 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 whoa, 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 you probably shouldn't do that. God knows. This is the, the bigger sin is Israel wasn't holding Israel accountable to the holiness of God. And, Israel, and he says, so you're you, one for all, all for one. You all are family. You represent each other. So you help each other out in walking in holiness. So verse 13, get up. I guess he hasn't gotten up yet. Get up, concentrate, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, that there are devoted things in the midst of Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near to by your tribes. And the tribe by, um, that the Lord takes by lot shall be, where am I? shall come near by clans. And the clan that um, the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things uh, shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has sinned, transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So God gives Joshua very specific instructions. Tomorrow, gather everybody in their tribes, clans, families, individuals, because that's what we're going to get down to. And all of this investigation leads to a man named Achan. And they find Achan in verse 20. Um, uh, Joshua calls out Achan, and we're just trying to speed through this a little bit. And in verse 20, Achan answers Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil of Jericho a beautiful cloak of, from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can we just all say we would all be a little tempted by those things? I mean, keep the robe, but the bar of gold? Bring that here, right? Then I, convert, I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan immediately confesses that he is guilty. Interestingly, the beautiful cloak from Shinar is mentioned in Genesis 11.2. It was created by the, peop- by the men who also built the Tower of Babel. So this dates back to the... T- it's, a, it's a beautiful antique, right? It's, it's a wonderful thing. 200 shekels of silver weighed about 80 ounces. 50 shekels of gold was a wedge of gold, and it weighed about 20 ounces. The guy got away with a lot of stuff. Deuteronomy 20. In Deuteronomy 20, Moses tells the people of God, this is what God has said. You are going into a place that worships false gods. Everything they do worships a false god. You have to burn it to the ground. This is a to place the, the promised land is devoted to idols and demons, and you have to burn it. You cannot keep it. It does say in Deuteronomy 20, you can keep the livestock, the women, and the children, burn everything else to the ground. You do not keep these things. I don't care how great of an artifact the robe of Shinar is going to be, Indiana Jones, you burn it. You get rid of it. All of it has to go. Right? So this wasn't like Aiken going by Target and picking up a pair of blue jeans and a loot. Right? This, isn't, this isn't that. He is, this is like Achan going to a Wiccan festival and grabbing a you know, crystal ball. Right? You guys see the difference? Right? This isn't Target jeans. It's crystal balls from Wiccan festivals. You do see the difference. I just want to make sure you're all still with me. Okay. Making sure that this wasn't something in my head that didn't feel like Wiccan. Yeah, I don't understand. And so anyway, 
you wouldn't want that darkness in your house, right? And God says, I don't care how beautiful the crystal ball is. You break it. You destroy it, right? There are no targets in Jericho or Steamboat, right? You get rid of that, Chris. You get rid of these things as old as they are and as beautiful they are because they have been devoted to false gods and they have no business in, in your house, right? <clears throat> so Achan's sin, he omits it immediately, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's interesting. The steps of Achan's sin, are always, they're the same. Every time in Scripture, he saw, he even says it, he coveted, he justified, and he took it. I've been in the desert. I've been in the desert forever. I've been poor. God wants me to be rich. This is the promised land. I can have that gold. I can have that antique. I deserve it. I want it. I see it. I justified it. And then I just took it. The same thing Eve did. She saw the apple. She wanted the apple. She justified it. I can be just like God. And she ate it. She gave it to her husband. Same thing. We do the same thing. David did the same thing with Bathsheba. He saw her. He wanted her. He justified it. I'm the king. And he took her. Sin after sin after sin. It always starts that way. Guard your heart. Let it stop with the I saw. And then you click the X, you close the book, you shut the door, you move on, you drive past, whatever it is, but let it stop with I saw. There's no sin in seeing, but there is sin afterwards. Don't let that sin consume you. You deal with it. He breaks five commandments. The eighth commandment um, <clears throat> about stealing. He breaks God's constructions in Deuteronomy 20. He, uh, he lies, um, which is also a sin. He breaks the first commandment about not having other gods, and he also breaks the ninth commandment about coveting. Five commandments in one. He is so guilty. And then he says he tried to hide it. Um, we, do the, we do the same thing, don't we? We find ourselves in sin, and we, we try to hide it. Achan tried to hide it. Adam, remember, he's, remember how silly that is in Genesis 3? It's meant to be silly. When Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes from God, and we kind of go like, what in the world? You're hiding from the God of the universe in a bush? Seriously. It's meant, it's meant to make you do that. Because the, the author is trying to say, that's how it is with all sin. Sin doesn't hide. It always finds a way out. King David couldn't hide his sin. Oh, I got quite the list. Clinton couldn't hide his sin. Trump can't hide his sin. Cohen can't hide his sin. Am I getting too political for you? These are powerful men with lots of resources, and they're all busted. They can't hide their sin. What makes you think you can? Sin never hides. It always comes out. And it's way better to bring it out than to have God do it. So he tells... Um, and tells Joshua, you know, to deal with your sin. In fact, the rest of the story of Achan, I don't want to read to you because it is really dark and it's really hard. You're welcome to go read it for yourself. I recommend you don't eat while you do it. I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to see what happens to Achan. But Achan, let's just put it this way, there's no lineage of Achan in this people of Israel anymore for the rest of eternity after this. This is it. This is the end of Achan's line. And it's really, really hard to see. But that's, they... People of Israel said, we are going to repent of this and we're going to make it severe. Jesus said, 
If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. What is he saying? He's saying if you are being led to sin with something, be severe. He's not literally saying cut your arms off, but he is saying literally be severe. Don't just dabble with sin, right? I mean, some of us, like, this is the line of sin, right? And we're like, how close can I get before I feel uncomfortable? And I'm, gonna be like, I'm just going to put my toe right here, over here. Can you not see the line? I'm going over the line. No, no, go right back. And the Bible says, flee. <laughs> like, flee from sin. And we're, like, trying to get as close as we can to it, right? And the Bible says, listen, if you find yourself in sin, you need to be, like, so severe. You don't want to mess with this stuff. You don't want this stuff in your life. It's going to mess you up. It's going to find you out. Be severe. Get counseling. Confess it to a friend. Find somebody you can trust. Throw out your iPod. Throw out your iPhone. Throw out your computer. Cancel Facebook. Do something severe, whatever it takes. But you break relationships, whatever it takes. But if something's leading you to sin, you get medieval on that thing. Right? And make it go away. You get, yeah, okay. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Now, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given it into the hand of the king of Ai, giving, given you, given into your hand the king of Ai. And his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai as you did to the king of Jericho. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. I love that. Pay attention to that. It's a really interesting thing. By night, the night, when you're in Israel, they talk about all these battles. The night belongs to Israel. When Abraham goes and saves Lot, he does it with an army, and he does it at night. One of the great tank battles in, in military history is a tank battle at the Golan Heights, where the Israelites, there's one Israelite tank for seven Syrian tanks, and Israel, one, still has that land today. It do, they did it by night. It's crazy. Israel, they say Israel owns the night. It's like a biblical thing and like a real thing. It's wild. Okay, anyway. But just to be safe, God, we're not sending 3,000. We're sending 30,000 guys to take a town of 12,000 with 3,000 fighting men. Just to be careful, right? So way overpowered, way overpowered. And we're just going to, and they do it. They set an ambush. They make it look like they get caught again. And it's, it's really, really fun literature. Okay, but we don't have time for all that. The word AI actually means in Hebrew, ruin. It probably had a different name before this, but they know this area of Israel now as AI because it is ruins and it still ruins today. It is nothing, just as God said it would be. But make no mistake about it, 30,000 men or 40,000 men or 60,000 men or 100,000 men, God gave them this victory. They still would have fallen had they not been vicious in dealing with their sin. And then that leads them, after the victory, they keep on heading into what's now called the West Bank. And I have a picture of it, of the mountain, Mount Ebal. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the people of Israel, as is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, why did they go to the mountain? 
Why do you go to the mountain? An altar of uncut stones upon which no man has weighed, um, has wielded an iron tool on, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings to the Lord. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, probably the Ten Commandments, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourns, that's strangers, aliens, people they've gathered along the way, people from Jericho, Rahab, her family, those, okay, as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and the judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them on Mount Gerizim and half of them on Mount Ebal. So do you have that? Can you put that picture up? There it is. That's both those mountains today. Mount Gerizim is on this side. Ebal is the smaller one. And so they're on both mountains and the people have millions. Again, this is a huge country as gathered at this place at the foot of these mountains. Um, half of them Mount Gerizim, half of them at Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, he read all the words of the law. Now, before I, I read the rest of this to you, I want to tell you what, what's unique about this, this area. Um, scientists have gone on to, to have read this and have, have wondered why did they go here and why did they do this and was it possible for everybody to hear this? And apparently what happens is this this valley has become an amphithe- is an amphitheater. It's a natural amphitheater. So one person standing on one side of the mountain can cry out to the other person on the other side of the mountain. Crazy. And so all the people in the middle can hear it. It's just the weirdest phenomenon. We used to live in Treehouse. You guys know where Treehouse is? On the other, it's on Mount Emerald and Mount Warner's on the other side. I didn't have to go to Wondergrass. I could hear the whole thing in my house, right? I mean, I, we would hear people coming out of the pub down there by the wild horse. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I know some of you were there. I, you know, I heard you, right? I mean, it's like, I don't want to hear this conversation. I'm just trying to have a peaceful night on my deck, and it's like, oh, oh, oh. It's like, it's the weirdest thing. It bounces off the water, came right up on the treehouse. Same thing, right? They're able to communicate this, so everybody's able to hear. And afterward, he read the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. He read Leviticus, he read Deuteronomy, he read Numbers, and they sat there and liked it. He went long. (laughs) And they didn't complain a bit. Y'all don't complain at all, I'm just kidding. There was not a word that all the most... uh, And that Joshua did not read before all the people of the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones, even the children sat for it, no children's church in Israel, and the sojourns who lived among them. Here's what they're doing. They're gathering at the mountaintop. They are looking back on the experience they just had, their worst day, where they felt like God had abandoned them. And they say, okay, God, we dealt with our sin, and here's what they're doing. When they read the book of the law like that, the reason I read all this to you, we are recommitting our lives to you. We are recommitting our trust to your word We're recommitting our trust to your promises. We're recommitting our trust in your covenants. We're recommitting our purposes in you. We are laying all these things. We have gathered at the mountain today to have a mountaintop experience, and that experience is us recommitting to you because we were in sin. We as a nation were in sin. And after this, they don't fail again until many, many years, and that actually will be next week. in the book of Judges. Have you ever heard of Ilium, England? Ilium, 
England. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. E-L-Y-M. I have a picture of it. It's real. There's a street. In the 1600s, the tailor of Ilium, his name was George Vickers. It's very random. Why would we know the name of the tailor in the 1600s of Ilium, England? Well, he ordered some clothes, some cloth, because he's a tailor. And it had finally come in. It had finally been shipped in. And it arrived. And he opened up the crate and out flew fleas. And they were carrying with them the black plague. And the black plague struck Elium, England. Vickers died in four days. The plague had already, it had been wreaking havoc on England for hundreds of years. In fact, it's called the Black Plague, came from the Black Sea, and it had, it had started in the 1300s. We're 300 years in, tens of thousands of people have died. It is a devastating plague. Nobody lives through it. Ilium, a small town, they say, we've, we've contracted the Black Plague in our town. We know exactly what we need to do, and they quarantine the town. Nobody can come in, and nobody can come out. They do this to save their neighboring towns. It's a noble act. It's wonderful. And so people from the other towns, because they couldn't farm, they couldn't take care of themselves, the people from other towns would come to like uh, distant places and drop off food for the people of Ilium where they wouldn't have contact. And they would come and get food, and they, they would just survive as long as they possibly could. But the strangest thing about Ilium is this. It survived. Isn't that crazy? Like, some people died, but for the most part... The people of Ilium survived, and it's still there today. In fact, what you're looking at is one, they call it the Plague Cottage. <laughs> you can go, and it's called the Plague Village, if you really, that's the unofficial name of this place, the Plague Village, where the plague, where people survived the plague, quarantined. And so scientists have gone in, and they said, what on earth? How did these people survive this plague? Like, how did, everybody dies, how did the people of Ilium survive? You know what they found out? DNA that the people of Ilium had this special DNA strand that made their white blood cells a little bit stronger. And although some died, many, many lived because of a special DNA strand that they had. Isn't this incredible? So here's the plague could touch them, but it wouldn't kill them because of their DNA, because of something inside of them. My friends, sin can touch you. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, but it cannot kill you. Why? Because of something inside. Because of the work of Jesus Christ inside of you. Because of the blood that was shed on that cross for you. If you have found yourself in sin today, I want to encourage you that you are not going to die from this sin. It can touch you, and it can cause circumstances to go awry, and it can cause all kinds of pain in your life, but it can't kill you because you've got the blood of Christ covering you, and you can be restored and I hope that you'll walk in that restoration today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for all it can teach us. And I pray, God, for any who may be struggling with sin this morning, I pray that they will know your grace. Um, I didn't say grace enough, God, <laughs> but your grace is all over this story. You don't have to forgive us. You don't have to send your son Jesus. You don't have to forgive Israel. You don't have to forgive it. You don't have to do any of the things that you did, but yet you still forgive us and offer us grace despite our sin. And so, God, I pray that those, God, who have found themselves trying to hide will come clean today and find nothing but grace and love in you because of the work of Jesus. And there's some, Father, who have yet to receive Christ as their Savior. I pray, God, that you are stirring in their hearts a desire 
to know you deeper and to be free from the things that have trapped them and enslaved them. Thank you again, Lord, for all that you've done through us through Christ. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen.